Well, no matter what the sport, top athletes are always looking to push themselves to the breaking point. And this drive, this passion has led to the creation of all sorts of competitive events that test the limits of the human body. For example, the race across America is a 3,000-mile bike race from the Pacific Ocean all the way to the Atlantic Ocean. And the participants only have 12 days to finish, which means the riders spend more than 20 hours per day on their bikes, sleep as little as 90 minutes, and struggle at times with hallucinations to such an extent that they're constantly being monitored. Or how about the Marathon des Sables, which some say is the world's toughest foot race, because it's a 150-mile-long race in the Moroccan desert while carrying all of your supplies on your back, and at times includes running through sandstorms where runners have literally gotten lost for up to nine days at a time. Or how about the Iditarod Invitational, so the 1,000-mile dog sled race across Alaska in February, where the temperatures drop as low as minus 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Or how about the Ironman Triathlon, swimming 2.4 miles, biking 1 to 112 miles, and then doing what for fun? Yeah, 26.2 more miles, which winners have done in less than eight hours. That's about my time. <laughs> or my favorite, the Badwater Ultra Marathon. So a 135-mile foot race from Death Valley so below sea level to Mount Whitney, over 8,000 feet above sea level, which means that you're constantly running uphill. Why would you do that? I only run uphills so that I can run downhills on the other side. But pick any one of those races. And ask yourself the question, why in the world would they do it? I mean, why endure such pain and agony and suffering? What is the motivation? In my mind, it's one word. Glory. Now, it's a passing glory and a fleeting glory, but nonetheless, the motivation is glory. Before you react to that, it's not all bad. Because it's the same motivation that should drive us to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Meaning, why endure persecution? Why serve others? Why give up your stuff, your wealth, and your riches in exchange for being generous, giving to those in need, and sacrificing for the sake of others? What's the motivation for all of that? Is it not glory? Now, it's not the fleeting glory of winning a 135-mile foot race from Death Valley to Mount Whitney but the future glory of being in God's presence for all eternity, the new heavens and the new earth, along with all the other people who have counted the cost, weighed and measured, and lost everything in this life in order to gain Christ. And I would suggest that as we look at Hebrews chapter 11 and the hall of faith, we're going to see just how clear it is that we must be fully convinced with certainty of our future glory when Christ returns. So if you would go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 11. If 
you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you, it's on page 1007. I would very much encourage you to have your Bible open to Hebrews 11, page 1007, and to have your outline in your Bible. As you're turning, let me just remind you that Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians who are struggling with the persecution that is very much coming. So they're being tempted to abandon their salvation in Christ and turn back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. So they're being tempted to exchange Jesus for Moses. The reason they would do that is because that would prevent them from being persecuted. So the author is pleading with them to draw near to God, to hold fast to their confession, to stir up one another to love and good deeds, and to encourage them... He provides example after example of faithful men and women from throughout the entire Old Testament who have counted the cost, weighed and measured, and put their faith in Christ. And in doing so, have persevered. So if you would look at your outline, faith and future glory, we're going to see three demonstrations, faith and obedience, faith and perseverance, faith and trials. Follow along as I read the entirety of our text as we begin, verses 8 to 22. The author says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was rested, offered up Isaac. And he had, when Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Now, Abraham's faith is clearly the focus of this entire section. And we're being given, if you will, his greatest hits. 
meaning all the high points of his life, starting with Genesis chapter 12 and God's call on his life, that, by the way, required massive obedience. But verse 8 gives us the summary, that by faith Abraham obeyed. But here's the context. When he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out, notice, not knowing where he was going. Now remember, God called Abraham out of the darkness of a city called Ur, which included paganism and polytheism. So a city dominated by massive three-tiered ziggurats built as shrines to false gods. So Abraham's entire family was polytheistic and not nominal in their worship, but committed, devoted, and dedicated, their whole lives dedicated to false gods. So that's what God called Abraham out of. And Abraham obeyed, which is no small task. Because God's command, Genesis 12, 1, he said to Abraham, leave your country, leave your kindred, and leave your father's house in order to go to a land that I will show you. Now, we can't even imagine how difficult that must have been for him. Because we live in a highly mobile society. And not just for vacations, but for the entirety of our lives. But in ancient times, people hunkered down in their location for generation after generation after generation. So your country, your family, and your father's house was absolutely everything that you knew. They represented your territory, your livelihood, your identity, your safety, and your security. Yet God called Abraham to leave all of that behind. Abraham, leave all that you know. And how did Abraham respond? Verse 8 says, By faith, Abraham obeyed. Before I press on, let me just say, the call on Abraham's life is no different than the call of the gospel on every one of our lives. I mean, just think about Jesus' words in Matthew 10. That whoever loves father, mother, sister, or brother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. For whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will find it for all eternity. And when Jesus calls, he doesn't guarantee all of the details, does he? He doesn't say that all will be easy. He doesn't say that all will be smooth. He doesn't promise you that all of your problems will go away. But what he does promise you is life, eternal life. And he promises you future glory. So he makes promises. Made them to Abraham. You will have a great name, great nation, be a great blessing, and you will inherit a great land. 
So promise is made. And number one, faith obeys. Abraham leaves all that he's ever known, including polytheism, in order to obey the one true God. Faith doesn't just obey, does it? Number two, faith sojourns. Because he went out, not knowing where he was going. But by faith, he left, he went to live in the land of promise. Notice the description. He went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Now think about that. Because Abraham was promised a great name, great nation, great blessing, and great land. And yet here he is, living in a tent. In fact, during his entire life in Canaan, he never owned a single piece of property, at least not until Sarah died and he bought just enough property in order to bury her. My point is, Abraham never really belonged in the promised land. Abraham never really fit in. He was religious. They were pagans. He was monotheistic. They believed in many gods. His standard of morality was grounded in the person, attributes, and the character of God. Theirs was grounded in their own thinking. So his entire life, core values and convictions, thinking and his entire worldview was 100% contrary to the people around him. And yet, faith sojourns. Here's the question. How is that possible? Well, verse 10 tells us. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. So number three, faith looks forward. Because faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. Verse one. So Abraham joyfully endured his nomadic existence. Why? Because he believed the promises of God, that he would inherit the future glory of a far better promised land. I mean, just consider the description in verse 10. Because God's city will not be like the cities of Canaan, Egypt, or even Rome, which, by the way, once called itself the eternal city. But all those cities have come and gone. They've been sacked, plundered, and pillaged. But not God's city. God's city is safe and secure. It's eternal and it is unshakable. That's what it means to have foundations. It cannot be destroyed. So how did Abraham endure? By looking forward to that future glory. In fact, it framed the way he looked at his entire existence. So his whole life, even while he lived in a tent as a nomad, so that he could obtain the glory of that future reality. Now, in my mind, that's a lesson that we desperately need to learn. That faith in Christ demands we live, not anti-cultural, but certainly counter-cultural. Because a, faith, a vibrant faith in Christ doesn't fit in with a culture of comfort and ease. Doing anything and everything we can to create a heaven-like existence in the here and now. Which, by the way, is why the world says, eat, drink, and be merry. Because 
That's all there is, and that's all there will ever be. But not for the Christian. Here's my point. We should never feel at home here. We should never get comfortable. We should always be looking forward to that future city where righteousness will one day reign for all eternity. To say it the other way, right? It would be dangerous for a Christian to start feeling settled here. Because when faith obeys, it looks forward to a future glory. So let me be clear. Dear believer, this world is not your home. This world is not your home. Do you know that this morning? Do you believe that this morning? This world is not your home. Yet my fear is that so often we live like it is. What would it look like for you and I to live as sojourners? Obeying God's call on our lives and looking forward in all that we do in eager anticipation of future glory. What would that look like? And how would it transform your orientation to the here and now? That's faith in the promised land. Then the author moves on. B, faith in the promised son. Verse 11, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. Even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Now again, you have to remember the story because God promised Abraham that he would be the father of a great nation, which of course also meant that Sarah would be the mother of a great nation. But there was a pretty significant problem, wasn't there? They were old, like really old, well past the age of having children. So they started coming up with alternative options to make that happen, starting with a member of their own household, Eleazar of Damascus. But God said, this man shall not be your heir. Instead, a son shall come from your own body, Abraham. So then what did they do? Well, they tried the whole surrogate mother thing with Sarah's servant, Hagar, which was obviously a mess. So God appeared to them Again, he's so gracious, and he clarified, I will give you a son by Sarah. I will bless her, and she shall become a great nation. Then Abraham fell on his face, and he laughed, saying, Shall a child really be born to a man who is 100 years old, and shall Sarah, who is 90, bear a son? Sarah's response was no different. She laughed as well. So their initial responses were not good, were they? Yet look at verse 11. It says, by faith, 
Sarah herself received power to conceive since she considered him faithful who had promised. Romans 4 confirms it. Says that without becoming weak in faith, Abraham contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. Now, in both those verses, what I want you to grab a hold of is faith and reason. Faith and reason. Because Abraham and Sarah both knew the situation was humanly impossible. So it's not like they were clueless about their age or their barrenness or their infertility. They knew all about that. They were well aware. That's why they laughed. You know, sometimes... People are under the impression that when you come to faith, you have to start ignoring facts, right? They, they accuse us of faith being a crutch and the reality that when you start believing, that is the time when you check your brain at the door. But nothing could be further from the truth. Because faith and facts are not mutually exclusive. Faith without reason is fideism, and reason without facts is rationalism. And the truth is, we shouldn't indulge in either of them. But instead, we should hear the word of God, the commands of God, and the promises of God, and we should rationally assess them in the world in which we live. But if God promises something then it's going to happen. So how should you respond to the promise? You should respond in faith, trusting the promises of God. Why would you trust the promises of God? Because that's the most rational thing you could do, right? God made a promise. It's going to come to pass. What should you rationally do? You should believe the promise of God. That is the most rational thing to do. Because God is God. And God doesn't lie. And God will always fulfill his promises. Because in God's speaking is God's doing. Those are one and the same. So Abraham and Sarah don't take an unreasonable leap of faith. No, they simply trust that what God had promised, he was also able to do. And he would do. That's why verse 11 says Sarah considered God faithful to fulfill his promises. And Romans 4.20 says Abraham contemplated his own body as good as dead and was fully assured that what God had promised he would do. You know, George Sweeting, one of the presidents of Moody Bible Institute, once gave this very memorable definition of optimism. George said, and I quote, optimism is when an 85-year-old man marries a 35-year-old woman and moves into a 12-room house next to an elementary 
school. George said, that's the definition of optimism. But according to Hebrews 11, I would offer another definition. Optimism is when a 100-year-old man and his 90-year-old bride hear God say, you're going to be the proud parents of a promised son whose offspring will fill not a schoolhouse, but the whole earth. They will be as many as the stars in the sky and as many as the sand on the seashore. And what I'm saying is to believe that is not wishful thinking and is not hoping for the best, but is faith and reason, which results in number two, faith and reality. Because that's exactly what happened. Look at verse four. Notice how it says, therefore. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand on the seashore. Here's the take-home message. Faith believes with deep conviction the promises of God, not because it's wishful thinking, but because it's God who's doing the promising. So faith believes. Faith obeys. Faith sojourns. And faith looks forward with full assurance to future glory. And faith trusts that what God has promised will surely come to pass. That's number one, faith and obedience. Now number two, faith and perseverance. Allow me to read verses 13 to 16. Again, the author says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, from a distance, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Now notice how verse 13 starts. It starts by saying, these all died in faith. Who's the all? Well, it's everyone he's just highlighted as examples, right? So Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Sarah, and no doubt all of the folks that he's going to list coming forward. But they all died in faith, which means that they persevered to the end. Because death is the final test of faith, isn't it? I mean, that's what we've been hearing the entire time in Hebrews. For example, chapter 3, verse 14 says, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So, starting by faith is great. But really, finishing by faith is what's absolutely critical. 
So we want to be clear on that, don't you? I mean, I know that's what I want. I want to finish well. I want to make it to the end. I want to persevere and endure. Because the beauty, glory, and encouragement of this entire hall of faith is that they made it. So their dying was not simply that they died, but that they died in faith. And they did that according to verse 13. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Now, you might be totally confused by that entire idea. I mean, how did they not receive the things promised? Were they not looking forward to heaven? Of course they were. Did they not die in faith? Of course they did. It says they died in faith. Well, then how did they not receive the things promised? Well, if you would, turn with me to verses 39 and 40. So still in Hebrews 11, just flipping to the end of it, verses 39 and 40. I think these verses are helpful to explain how this works. Verse 39, the author says, And all these, meaning everyone who is listed in Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better, notice, for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What does that mean? It means the author of Hebrews is not simply talking about the promise of making it to your own death, where absent from the body is present with the Lord, and that is far better. Now, that's certainly a good goal. You should have that goal. But that's not what he's talking about. Instead, he's talking about when Christ returns at the end of the age, when all things will be made right and Jesus will usher in the eternal kingdom and his everlasting city, which is unshakable, unshakable foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And what he's saying is that all of God's people, from all the way back in Genesis, Abel, Enoch, and Noah, all the way forward to the last person who puts their faith in Christ, they will all be joined together at that point in time in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the promise the author's talking about. So yes, they have not yet received it. They're still waiting. But they will. That's guaranteed. Why? Because God promised. And if you believe in Jesus along with them, you'll be there when they receive it. How glorious is that thought? But here's the key. They look forward to it. And they've seen it with spiritual eyes of faith. That's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, not seen with physical eyes, but absolutely seen with spiritual eyes, eyes of faith. So they've seen it, they've greeted it, and they've desired it from a distance which empowered them to do what? To live by faith. 
So in order to die by faith, you have to live by faith. Which looks like what? Well, it looks like number one. Embracing the exile. Verse 13 says, They acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So they weren't trying to make heaven on earth, but instead embraced the fact that this is not their home. Beloved, you shouldn't feel comfortable here. You shouldn't expect to fit in. You shouldn't have this unreasonable expectation that the people around you are going to agree with you or that they're going to value what you value or that they're going to care about the sanctity of human life or that God created people male and female or that God even exists. The people of old, they embraced all that. Oh, I pray this would not be lost on us today. Beloved, here's the simple truth. Stop trying to fit in. But instead, embrace what the Bible teaches all over the place. This is not your home. Stop trying to make it your home. Boy, that explains a ton of the problems we're having, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. This is not my home. Philippians 3.20 says, our citizenship is in heaven. Ephesians 2.19 says, your fellow citizens with the saints, your members of the household of God. Colossians 3 says, if you have been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. In fact, set your minds on things above and not on the things of this earth. Why? Because you've died and your life is hidden with Christ. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him. Where? Where does he say we will appear with him? In glory. Future glory. Do you hear what I'm saying? Nod your head. Amen. Hallelujah. I'm in agreement. I hear what you're saying. Preach on, brother. Preach on. We need to hear that. True faith embraces the exile. And true faith, number two, looks forward. In fact, that's what makes it possible to embrace the exile because we're not living for the here and now but looking forward. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for in the future, the conviction of things not yet seen now but confident in the future. So faith looks forward, which is evident and obvious in the way in which you live. Just look at what the author says, verse 14. For people who speak thus, make it clear What's he saying? He's saying you got to do more than just talk the talk. That's what he's saying. You have to walk the walk. For people who speak thus make it clear. They make it evident and obvious that they are seeking a heavenly homeland. For if they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had every opportunity to do what? 
to return, but they didn't. Instead, they desired a better country that is a heavenly one. Now, just think about that and think about it in light of the immediate audience. They were being tempted to abandon Christ in order to do what? To return to the Old Testament sacrificial system. So the author is exhorting them. You cannot turn back. Why can you not turn back? Because faith looks forward. That's how you have to live if you're going to live by faith and die by faith. And how do we do that? Well, we do that by cultivating a greater affection for that future city. So desiring our eternal heavenly home over this earthly temporary existence. Do you understand? And there's all sorts of commands that flow from that reality. In fact, that's why the Bible calls and commands you to be generous with your money. Not because the church wants it from you. Right? That's what we say. I didn't say. This is his word. He said you should give generously and faithfully. Joyfully even. Stop grumbling. Right? Why does he do that though? Because he wants to help you to not be tethered to the things of this world. The worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things. So that needs to be cultivated in your life. You need to work on your heart by making good decisions with your head. Because your heart is a follower to the decisions you make with your head. That's why Jesus says, Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, where your treasure is, where your mind says, this is my treasure, there will your heart be also. So what does he say in Matthew 6? He says very specifically, lay up your treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy or thieves break in and steal. Because wherever you put your money, that's where your heart will be also. So what's he saying? He's saying invest in your future home so that you're looking forward to being there in that better country, that eternal city, in God's presence for all eternity because that's the ultimate reward, isn't it? We need to be clear on this, that the glory of heaven is not going to be golfing on your favorite courses. That's not heaven. I hear it at every funeral. Yeah, he's going to be golfing there on his favorite courses. No, 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 he's not. That's not what heaven is about. It is not about golfing on your favorite courses. Not ultimately. It's also not about seeing your mom or your dad or your grandpa again. Not ultimately. I'm not saying those aren't great, glorious truths that we will be together with the people of God. I'm just saying that's not ultimately what heaven is all about. The glory of heaven 
is that we will be in God's presence. That's the glory of receiving the promise. You're like, well, you're making that up. I'm not making it up. Look at verse 16. This is what he's arguing. He says, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly home. Therefore, as a concluder, notice what he says. God is not ashamed to be their God. For he has prepared for them an eternal city not to live without him, but to be with him. Fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. You know, no greater tribute could possibly be paid to any man, woman, or child than for God himself to proudly say of them, I am your God. Think about that. God himself saying, I'm the God of Steve Thiel. That's my boy. I'm the God of Rachel Carollo. That's my girl. There's no greater tribute that could be possibly paid than for God to say that of you. That's what we do with our kids. We put bumper stickers on our cars. My kid made the, wrote, you know, great grades. He's a proud student. I'm a proud mama, right? Bumper stickers. The God of all eternity is saying, I'm proud that you're my son. You're my daughter. No greater tribute than that. For God to be our God and for us to be his children. Let me just ask, do you believe that? And is that your greatest joy? That he can say, that's my boy. That's my girl. And you can say, that's my God. You know, Henry Morrison was a faithful missionary to Africa for 40 years. And on his trip home to New York City, as the ship neared the docks, he went up and stood on the deck. And he noticed this massive crowd forming to such an extent that he called his wife, brought her up onto the deck, and he said, look at that crowd. Praise God that they haven't forgotten us. However, unknown to Henry, the ship also carried Teddy Roosevelt, who was returning home from a hunting trip. So when President Roosevelt stepped off the boat, there were all these people cheering, flags waving, bands playing, this big, massive celebration. And then Henry got off. No fanfare whatsoever. Not a single person. He had to catch a cab in order to make it to the missionary house they were staying at. 
And it totally discouraged him for weeks. You know this feeling. It just irked him. He's frustrated that this man, President Roosevelt, returns from a stupid hunting trip and the country throws this big, massive party. But I return from 40 years of faithful service to God in Africa and no one gives a rip. You know that feeling. You know the pity party that you throw. I know the pity party that I throw. Henry Morrison, one day shortly after, was in prayer. God made it abundantly clear to him. So while he was praying, sharing with God his struggles and his frustrations, especially about not being appreciated, he said, and I quote, it was if the Lord put his hand on my shoulder and simply said, but Henry, you're not yet home. Do you see? That's how we must live. By faith, embracing our exile and looking forward to that future glory when we will be in God's eternal city and we will hear him say, I'm your God. Welcome home. That is faith and perseverance. Now number three, faith and trials. You're like number three. I'm good with two this morning. (laughs) I know you are, but we're going to press on. Number three will be shorter than one and two. Same points, but let me read the text again. We'll walk through it quickly. Verses 17 to 22. The author says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Now, the main story being referenced here is from Genesis 22, which is one of the most important and most famous chapters in all the Bible because God tells Abraham to take his son, his only son, his promised son Isaac, up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. So be clear, this is a test beyond anything you could ever imagine. Yet Genesis 22.3 is abundantly clear that Abraham obeyed. It says he got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his men and Isaac who carried the wood for a burnt offering and set out for the place that God had told them to go. And on the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw it. So even though God's command seemed totally contrary to his promise, Abraham trusted God. 
How did he do that? Verse 19 says, again, faith and reason. He considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead, from which he received him back as a type. A type of what? A type of resurrection. Now, is that just the author's point of view? No. Genesis 22, 5 tells us that right before Abraham sacrificed Isaac, he said to his two men, stay here with the donkey, the boy and I will go over there to worship, but we, plural, meaning both of us, Abraham and Isaac, we will both come back to you. And not only that, but he said to Isaac, God will provide the lamb. Because that's who God is. God is the great provider, the one who is faithful, kind, and generous, who always delivers on his promises. So there's no need to worry. Even if it doesn't make any sense to you, God will make a way. Even raising Isaac from the dead, which is how Abraham interpreted the entire situation. So he received him back as his resurrected, promised, and beloved son. Now, what is so awesome about Genesis 22 is that it was always meant to point forward to the greater Father, God himself, who offered the ultimate promised and beloved Son, the Lord Jesus, on the cross at Calvary, which many believe is in the exact same location as Mount Moriah. But just think about that. Because we live in a day and age, culture and society, that says the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ doesn't make sense to them at all. Did that really happen? Did he really perform miracles? Did he really live even on this earth? Did he really die? Did he really rise from the dead? Yeah, I don't know about all that. Right? Our, our culture is skeptical. Maybe you're here this morning and you're skeptical. Maybe you're doubting. Maybe even you're hostile or critical to the things of the Bible. That's no surprise because salvation is only available to those who actually trust God, believe that he is God and that he rewards those who seek him. Verse 6, so true faith trusts God. Trust that Jesus really did live. Jesus really did die. Jesus really did rise from the grave. Jesus really did ascend to God's right hand. And Jesus really is coming back to judge the living and the dead. So what should you do? You should believe the promises of God. Because I'm telling you, no but because God is promising. God promises. God never lies. The smartest, most rational thing you could do is to trust God and to believe in Jesus. And we should be, look forward, and long for his return, future Glory, just like the rest of the patriarchs and the people listed here in the hall of faith. Verse 20 says, By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. 
By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph. Verse 22, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the Exodus and gave directions concerning his bones. What does all of that mean? It means each one passed along the exact same promises they received from their father. So each one, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, were each trusting the promises of God. And each one looked forward to the future glory of Christ's return. And each one will consider it a joy and a privilege to be welcomed there in God's eternal city. That better country. And to hear him say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And if you're believing in Jesus, I am the God of you as well. And in that glorious celebration for all God's people, welcome home, the city that I have prepared for you. The joy of heaven is that we get God himself He is our treasure. So now remember where we started. Highlighting some of the most grueling races that take place every year and asking the question, why do people do it? Why do they endure the difficulty of those? Why do they even create the race? Glory. It's glory. People are willing to endure pain, agony, and suffering for the fleeting glory of winning physical races. Glory is the motivation, and glory is the fuel that drives the engine of perseverance. Well, then how much more should the reality of future glory, the new heavens and the new earth, and the reality of Christ's return and the establishment of God's eternal city, our heavenly home, and hearing him say, I'm thrilled to be your God, motivate all that we do in the here and now and fuel the engine of our affections so that we might persevere through the trials and the tribulations that this world throws at us. That glory should motivate all that we do. That glory should fuel the engine of perseverance so that we make it there. So then what should we do? Well, we have to cultivate our affections for that future glory. What exactly does that look like? Well, I would suggest that it starts by meditating on the certainty of that reality. So looking at our momentary light afflictions, like paying bills, changing diapers, grading papers, fixing cars, reconciling relationships, watching loved ones get old, get sick, and die. So feeling all the weight of that, persevering through it by faith, recognizing that it's all just momentary light afflictions in comparison to the eternal weight of glory that will certainly be ours, the assurance of things hoped for in God's heavenly city. What I'm saying is that we must daily compare and contrast these two things. 
momentary light afflictions or even these wonderful gifts of grace, life and breath and every good thing, family, friends, loved ones, cars, homes, jobs, and a stacked retirement filled with vacations, money, and wealth, even those things, evaluate, compare, and contrast. Momentary light afflictions, momentary wonderful blessings, eternal weight of glory. Yeah, I'll take eternal weight of glory every time. Why specifically? Because Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Beloved, I think you should weigh and measure every day. And what I'm trying to say to you is I think you should weigh and measure before you ever get out of bed. I think you should think that thought, momentary light afflictions, eternal weight of glory. Man, I'll take eternal weight of glory every time. And then what do you do when you get out of bed? You obey. Why do you obey? Just think about this. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, what should you do? Do all to the glory of God. Why do we obey in the here and now? Because we're preparing. Isn't that glorious? What are we going to do in heaven? What are we going to do in this eternal city? We're going to live to the glory of God. What should we do in the here and now? We should live to the glory of God. So then we get there. That's no surprise to us. We know how to live to the glory of God because we've been doing it our whole life, looking forward, longing for Christ's return and obeying him every step of the way so that we will be with him in eternal glory living for the glory of God. May God give us the grace that future glory would motivate all that we do in the here and now and cause us to persevere by faith. Allow me to pray to that end. Lord, how how we need the examples in our lives. All these died in faith. Lord, we want to persevere. We want to endure. We want to compare and contrast. And we want to know without question, deep conviction, that these momentary light afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Lord, I pray that the certainty, because God has promised it, would weigh heavy on our minds and on our hearts, that we would long for Christ's return. And that in the meantime, we would live by faith. 
living obediently before him. Whether we eat or we drink or whatever we do to the glory of God. Lord, give us grace to do that for our good and for your eternal glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.